Ladies and gentlemen, this is America's Healthcare Advocate. Broadcasting coast to coast across the USA. Your guide to protecting your personal health. Bringing you simplified answers to the complex questions surrounding healthcare. Everything from cancer to liver transplants. Nutrition. Exercise. My yoga and Pilates instructor, Dana Goodale. Mental health and even pet care. Dr. Wayne Hunthausen, Westwood Animal Hospital. Empowering you to take control of your health and wellness. My very special guest today, Grace Marie Turner, president of the Galen Institute. Welcome back, Grace Marie. Well, Carrie, it's a pleasure to be with you. And I do have to say, you are the most knowledgeable about health policy. Just superlative. And now, ladies and gentlemen. Gentlemen, 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 gentlemen. And now, America's healthcare advocate, Carrie Hall. Hello, America. Welcome to America's Healthcare Advocate Show, broadcasting coast to coast across the USA. Our producer, Mr. Oscar Monterosa. I'm your host, Carrie Hall. This is your show, America. Thank you for joining us and making us one of the most listened talk shows throughout the United States. 286 affiliates strong. Thanks to all of you in the listening audience. Our newest station in Elmira, New York. Very happy to have him on board. America's Healthcare Advocate Show. You can follow me on Facebook. That is America's Healthcare Advocate. Pretty easy to do, right? All of our shows are on podcast platforms. Tune in, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spreaker. So a lot of people will call and ask about a show or ask for a show. We're happy to send it to you. But you can go up to any one of those podcast platforms. Tune in, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spreaker. The shows are all up there. So if you want to tell somebody about a show like the one you're going to hear today, uh, it's of interest. You can go back up on the website uh, that, on those platforms, and the shows are all up there. They're all listed. They're also listed on the website. If you are looking for health insurance, if you're looking for Medicare or individual health insurance anywhere in the country, the lovely Joyce Thompson can certainly help you. She's at RPS Benefits by Design. The phone number there is 877-385-2224. If you need an expert, she is truly an expert on Medicare individual health insurance, 877-385-2224. And Susan Dendinger, who is an expert on employee group benefits, also at RPS BBDI. Happy to help you anywhere in the country, even in Guam, if you're actually in Guam, since we broadcast in Guam. Oscar, you brought that up today at lunch. I just remembered that. So anyway, she's also available at 877-385-2224. All right, joining me in studio today is Amy Allison from the Down Syndrome Guild of Kansas City. Amy Allison serves as the Vice President of Education and Advocacy for Down Syndrome Guild of Kansas City. Amy has a double bachelor's degree in psychology and sociology from Brigham Young University and began working in the field of developmental disabilities in 1995. She has provided support for thousands Thousands of families at all ages and stages across the lifespan and regularly consults with service providers, disability organizations, schools to help them implement best practices and increase positive outcomes for individuals with intellectual disabilities. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you. We've done a couple of these shows before. I think I'd mentioned, in fact, you mentioned coming in today. Um, my niece has a daughter, Piper. Um, Piper is a, a Down syndrome child. Um, I spent a lot of time around her. <laughs> She's very active, especially when she gets on the piano. So, so, so um, I, I have a little experience here with Down syndrome children. So what, what we want to do today is kind of take you through what these folks do here. Uh, at the Guild in Kansas City, their mission, how they function, how they support the community, and also to educate people 
about Down syndrome and, and, and what it's like to have a Down syndrome child and that whole issue of do I have a Down syndrome child if I'm pregnant? That's another issue. We'll talk about some of that stuff today. So once again, welcome, Amy. Why don't you just start by talking about the Guild here in Kansas City, which is part of the larger organization nationally. Let's just start with that. Absolutely. We started serving families in this area almost 40 years ago. And up until last week, we were Down Syndrome Guild of Kansas City. And now we have a new name and I have to put a dollar in the jar every time I say Down Syndrome Guild. So our new name, new brand is Down Syndrome Innovations. We're very excited about that. We feel it's more reflective of our mission, vision and values and the impact that we want to make on this community. And we, uh, right now I'm working with some families that have prenatal diagnosis and they'll welcome their babies with Down syndrome. And I, I checked and the oldest person in our database with Down syndrome is about six or she is 67 years old. Wow. So we are your lifespan partner. If you have a loved one with Down syndrome, we want to be there for you at every single age and stage and provide you support and resources that can be life-changing for your loved one. All right. So you just said something that I think is very interesting because this is an issue. Okay. And you know, I've got four granddaughters. Um, and both of my daughters, you know, tested, we didn't have a Down syndrome child, but they tested for it. So you, you said you're in the process of working with two mothers right now who know they're going to have a Down syndrome baby. Talk about that. And what type of a decision is that for mothers to make that decision? I mean, I, I remember, uh, you know, when Lauren, my niece found out that she was pregnant with the Down syndrome baby, and she said, we're absolutely having this baby. Um, so talk a little bit about that. Cause that's a whole another piece of this thing I think needs to be discussed. Absolutely. Prior to 2007, we were only screening older mothers. I think somebody used the term geriatric, meaning if you're over 35, I need to find that person and put a herd on them somewhere. But, okay. Uh, so we were only testing older mothers because the, the older the mother is, the more likely you are to conceive and give birth to a baby with Down syndrome. But uh, some maternal fetal blood tests became available in 2007. There was a rush to market and we started screening uh, more and more pregnancies uh, prenatally for this. So when I started at the Guild in 2003, I would tell you 80% of our families were surprised in the with a diagnosis in the delivery room and, and the 20% that knew ahead of time were mothers who fell in that quote-unquote geriatric category so were specifically screened. Uh, once they started screening every pregnancy we've seen our numbers go up so now I think we're closer to 60-40. Uh, 40% of our families are, are getting a prenatal diagnosis sometimes as early as 12 to 14 weeks into their pregnancy so they have an, a significant amount of time to wait to hold a baby, hug a baby, smell a baby, snuggle a baby, and imagine you know what the future can hold. And the support for those families does look a little bit different than somebody who finds out postnatally their baby will have Down syndrome. But we know through research, embedding them very quickly into our community, connecting them to other families is very important. We are a pro-information, pro-Down syndrome organization, so anybody is welcome to call us if they have a prenatal diagnosis. Uh, if they say we're considering termination, I make no value or judgment on that. We don't as an organization. We say what information would be helpful to you to make the best informed decision you can make. And in many instances, those couples want to talk to other families in similar scenarios, similar socioeconomic status, similar age range. Uh, similar geography, uh, people who have um, academia is like essential to them. They're all PhDs in their family. And so can I talk to somebody else who has a PhD that had a child with Down syndrome, what that looked like for them? So we, one of the hallmarks of what we offer is a parent-to-parent match where we try to connect people with similar circumstances so they can ask about their experiences. You know, I, I listened to that and I, and I think back to when Lauren, you know, was going through this and, and how she connected with a whole group of people that helped her get through the process, understand what it was going to be like. 
the unknown part of this is what I think scares the daylights out of a lot of people. What's it going to be like? How, how am I going to cope with this child? What, what are we going to do? How, what's required, et cetera? You all bringing all those pieces of the puzzle together and giving them a place to go where it's a safe harbor. We're not judging you one way or another. We're simply here to provide you as much information as we can and then let you make a decision. That's got to be an extraordinarily important piece for these people in order to make a good decision. They need to know that's out there. Absolutely. We have a lot of families that struggle and would never consider terminating, but still struggle with what is this going to look like for our family. And as soon as they can connect with other parents, it can it, the process can be a little bit normalized for them. They understand that there's a tribe of people that are walking this out with them in real time. There's a strong support organization. We have an amazing children's hospital here in town. And that children's outcomes, Mercy, yeah, assuming. Children's Mercy okay. is phenomenal. Our, our families are in every clinic and on every floor and have multiple procedures there. So we're frequent flyers there and non-COVID time to go visit families, but you know, last year's been a little bit off-putting and strange for all of us. <laughs> yeah, that's putting it mildly, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, to say the very least. So, you know, the other thing I think is interesting, and we'll talk about this when we come back from the break a little more, is I thought it was fascinating. The lifespan difference, and you mentioned what triggered that in my mind was you mentioned the oldest person that is currently still in your organization receiving help because this isn't a one-and-done type deal. You stay with these families and work with them throughout the lifespan of that Down syndrome child is 67 years old. Lifespans have changed quite a bit. Yes, Absolutely. Okay, so when we come back to the break, we'll talk about that, and, and, and you know, they, it's gotten significantly better. Uh, and I'm assuming that has a lot to do with treatment and, and recognizing the issues. Does it have also do with medications and other things as well? It's a variety of things, but I would tell you deinstitutionalization is the most important thing. When you go home to a loving family, your quality of life and, and longevity of your life increases. Then your loving family demands better medical care. Your lifespan increases. Then your family demands inclusive education in the community. Your lifespan increases with education. That's interesting because, as an example, Piper goes to a regular school. She attends a regular school in classroom. She's a little, you know, the grades aren't quite the same, but nonetheless, she's in school with children that are not Down syndrome children. So she's integrated into the community is the point, which I think is an important part of this. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk more about this. We have visiting with us in studio, Amy Allison, VP of Education. And I'm going to see if I don't have to put a dollar in the jar. She is with Down Syndrome Innovations, which is formerly the Down Syndrome Guild of Kansas City. We'll be right back after the break. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate, broadcasting here on the HI Radio Network, coast to coast across the USA. If you want information, the website, kcdsi, kcdsi.org. If you want to call somebody and talk to them, 913-384-4848, 913-384-4848. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate. Welcome back. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate Show, broadcasting coast to coast across the USA here on the HIE Radio Network. You can find out more about us by going to the website, americashealthcareadvocate.com. You can also follow me on Facebook at the same name, America's Healthcare Advocate, if you choose to do so. So you're listening to this today. Maybe you've got somebody in your family um, who has a Down syndrome child. Maybe you know someone in your church or in your at where you work or social organization. The website for these folks is kcdsi.org. 
they do an awful lot of hand-holding to help people understand how to deal with the child, what to expect, and what they need to do, and connect them with people that can, as you heard Amy say, kind of walk them through the process. So that's one reason why we're doing this show. We're broadcasting us nationally, by the way. We're not just broadcasting us here in Kansas City. So people around the country, um, I'll ask Amy to talk about the national organization here in a minute. But the idea here is to give you education into this issue and maybe take some of the fear away. What do I do if that turns out to be somebody in my family, you know, my wife, my sister, my, you know, whatever the case may be. So that's one of the reasons why we're doing this day. So joining me in studio, Amy Allison, Vice President of Education at Down Syndrome Innovations. I didn't blow it. Okay, I want job. to point that out. <laughs> okay, so uh, and again, we're talking about Down syndrome and and what's reality and, and and what they do across the country to help people. So one of the things that jumped right out with me when we were doing when I was going through the talking points for the show was current lifespan projections from people with Down syndrome. 1985, it was 25 to 30 years. Today, it's 55 to 60. And as we said before, we went out of the break. You have current client who is 67 years old and still with the Down syndrome uh, you know, w- with your organization here in Kansas City. So talk about the things that, 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 that have led to this. This is kind of amazing. I mean, really? It's amazing. I'm not a researcher, but I, I don't believe there's any other population of people you could say has had that large an advancement right. in their lifespan projections yeah. in such a short amount of time, unless you're talking about a third world country that got vaccinations or clean water for the yeah. first time. So it's a very exciting time to be born with Down syndrome. Our individuals are living longer than they ever had before. They have better quality care. And as I mentioned before break, I think part of this, you know, of course, medical advancements has, have advanced the lifespan, but going home to a loving family instead of going to a large institution is very impactful. Being educated in the community with your peers is very impactful impactful. Having a job will increase your lifespan. Staying active, having friends, having family is, you know, remarkable. And it helps you get up every day and continue to have purpose and to live. What what the problem is for associations like mine is we're behind the eight ball. You know, previous to this, when people were only living to be 25 to 30 years of age, we weren't focused on them graduating and going to college or getting a job or moving out of parents' home or getting married. We were just kind of focused on let's have them, let them have the best life they can have. They're only here for a little while. But now that these individuals are, are living well into their 50s and 60s, we're behind the, the curve for sure on you know promoting uh, competitive employment. And there's 250 post-secondary programs now across the country for people with intellectual disabilities. But a lot of our families didn't think that was an option. These are just brand new and were created in the last decade. And what does that look like? Can we get people ready to go to college? Can we get them ready for employment? Can we get them out in the community working competitively, uh, which is part of our name change and part of our re, our level set of our mission, vision, and values and making sure that we're serving the entire lifespan. Okay, so this is interesting. I went to the grocery store Sunday morning to pick up some things, uh, got up very early, got there about the time it was opening. The young lady that was bagging my groceries was Down syndrome, mm-hmm. and the, that, that particular uh, grocery store chain um, – this is Hen House here in Kansas City, evidently hires them, this, uh, these folks with disabilities to work there and actually work. But you said something, which I thought was, you know, that's not particularly unusual. She, she was sacking groceries and, you know, she had a job. She was out functioning their work. But you said something a minute ago that kind of caught me. You said going to college. Yeah. So we've got 
folks with Down syndrome now that are going to college. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's I'm, I'm, a lot of people out there going, really? So yeah, yeah okay, let's talk about that. There's a great website if you want to do any of your own research. It's called thinkcollege.net and there are uh, federal grants that are provided to universities and junior colleges, community colleges who want to launch these programs. They're usually two-year programs. They can include a residential component. They can be stay-at-home learners who commute into the campus and they're usually not degree-seeking. They're um, certificates of completion or they're um, you know, studying a, a specific skill or trade that they can learn that will then help them be employable. Many of these programs tie an internship to it, and it's a great opportunity for our individuals you know, with Down syndrome or other intellectual disabilities to have that true college experience, to, to leave home and to um, learn what it is they do well, to function in a different environment than always having parent supervision. As you know, whether regardless of how many chromosomes your kids have, a lot of parents do too many things for their kids that they should and could do for themselves. But that happens a lot. I hope with you all our listen population. to this out there. Okay. So it's you know, it's oftentimes them launching out in the community. We learn a lot about what they can do that they weren't either allowed to do at home or somebody did for them or modified or made it simpler for them. And most of us learn best by trial and error. And there's always dignity and risk. You know, when my mom sent me off to college, it didn't come with any fail-safe mechanism. She wasn't on campus checking on me. There was nobody making sure I paid my tuition on time. Like I had to, I had to rise to the occasion like everybody does when they first leave home. So this has been an exciting opportunity for our families but there's a, a, a lot of fear in it, too, to send your child away to college and will they be you know, taken advantage of it? Will it be scary? Uh, but the programs have a lot of great support embedded, and they've really been thoughtful about how they set up the curriculum and making it a real-life world experience that they can apply if they want to go out and get competitively employed. That's remarkable. I mean, it's just remarkable to hear you sit here and talk about it. They even think that that they could go to college, and, and then the fact that there's an internship program, so they're not just learning how to be a nurse's aide or learning how to be a caregiver or whatever it is they're going to do they're they're going to give them there's going to be a period of time where they're being able to function that program and have some oversight and some mentoring and tutorial whatever the case may be so they can become good at what it is they're going to do. Uh, there's a, a saying in our community that people with disabilities are, are relegated to food, filth, and flowers for their jobs, and we don't like that. We really want to get people with intellectual disabilities to have the whole range of jobs. Nobody told me you can only have these three jobs or you'd only be good at these three jobs, so a function of these programs also is to do some discovery with these individuals. Yes, we have an internship program that will teach you about working in a nursery doing plants, but you know what? Your, your passion, your jam is working with animals, so we'll figure that out with you and then we'll go approach a local vet clinic and see if you can do an internship there because if we all have a job that we're excited to go to and that's meaningful to us then we're probably likely to keep that job and have a greater impact on the employer but there's a strong business case to employ people with intellectual disabilities it changes your whole work environment you'll see probably people at the hen house would choose to wait in a longer line to go through and have the young lady with down syndrome bag their groceries uh, because it's worth them to make that personal connection with her and to see the joy that she takes in doing her job. Yeah, she really, the rest she of was, us don't. It was really funny because she did. <laughs> the way she bagged the groceries was a lot better than 90% of the people that bag groceries at the okay. grocery store. There you Very are. thoughtfully yeah. done, all put together. The bread wasn't on the bottom with milk on yeah. top of it, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's very interesting that you said that. Yeah. It's fascinating. That's really interesting information. I think it's really – this is going to educate a lot of people. 
about a lot of different things that they can do that they didn't know they could do. I mean, 250 programs, 250 organizations nationwide, that's a pretty significant amount of organizations. It is. So it is. If you want to learn more or you have somebody in your family that has, you know, someone that has Down syndrome, whatever the case may be, um, the website is kcdsi.org, kcdsi.org. 913-384-4848 is the phone number, 913-384-4848. We come back from the break. We'll talk about the national platform a little bit. We'll also talk about some of the other things that are going on in healthcare around Down syndrome and how all of that works. I want to ask Amy to go back one more time. She mentioned the word institution and what they used to do. I want to talk a little bit about that. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after the break. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate, broadcasting here on the HI Radio Network, coast to coast across the USA. Welcome back. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate Show, broadcasting coast to coast across Fruited Plain here on the HIA Radio Network. You can find out more about us by going to the website, americashealthcareadvocate.com. If you want to tell somebody about this show, maybe you know somebody that's expecting a Down syndrome child, maybe you know somebody with a family, may have some issues, some struggles, you can go up and listen to the show on the podcast platform, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Speaker, or iTunes. It's all up there. You can also reach out and talk to these people directly at 913-384. 4848. The website kcdsi.org. I'll give you the national website and address here in a minute how you can get in touch with people outside of Kansas City Metro because I know you're listening across the country, so I'll get that out to you here momentarily. Joining me in studio, Amy Allison, VP of Education for Down Syndrome Innovations, and we are talking about all things Down Syndrome. So let's go back a little bit. You mentioned something we, we were talking, and I went back to it off the air here. Use the word institutions. So these children were being institutionalized up until when? Uh, there were some progressive families that took their children home in the 50s, but for the most part, it was pretty general practice that babies with Down syndrome went to institutions well into the 1960s. It was the late 60s, early 70s when families started bucking the system and said, you know, this is a wanted pregnancy, a baby we plan for, and why would we not take this baby home and love this baby? And then there became power in numbers, and it didn't become this, you know, you're a saint for taking this baby home thing. It, it started to become more normalized, and and then those families fought for good quality health care for their sons and daughters and, and good quality education. And so there aren't any large institutions anymore for infants to go to. That's really good to hear. They, I'm glad they to hear don't you exist. Say that. Yeah, yeah, they do not exist. And um, I've, I've been working with associations in Russia for, since 2008. There was a, an aunt born who had a daughter with Down syndrome or niece born here with Down syndrome that with, with the State Department went to Russia. So I made several trips over there and worked with the associations there on State Department grants. And their institutionalization rate in 2008 was almost 100%. Um, because of the norms of, of the country. And so by helping them with education, and they have amazing advocates over there, so I'm not taking credit for any of this by any well, way. Should be but but I, sh- I shared with them, you know, here's the error of our ways, and it took us, you know, 40, 50 years to make this, to sunset all these institutions. And um, so I've made multiple trips over there. We provide a lot of education, advocacy, explained how we advance things here in the United States. And um, last year at my desk, I opened an email. It was the first year in a region of Russia that no babies with Down syndrome went to an institution. Wow. 
You got to feel pretty good about that. That's a cry at your desk kind of moment. And then not only that, but two families had gone to get their children from the institutions and take them home because they had seen enough education and advancement and advocacy and and stronger benefits. These parent support organizations are pivotal in changing everything, whether it's here in the United States or in Russia. We were just able to help them expedite it by learning from our mistakes. So it's been very exciting to watch that. And now there are, are typically developing parents who are adopting babies with Down syndrome from the institutions over there. Really? Yeah. So it's been interesting. You know, I wasn't around in the early 50s yeah, yeah, or 60s yeah. or whatever. So it's been great to see all this knowledge base transferred over there and see how they've been able to expedite that process. Pretty amazing. Yeah. It's been Pretty impactful. Yeah. The, the colleagues that I work with in Russia are amazing, and uh, it's been great to be a very small part of their advancements over That's, there. You're probably a little more than a small part, if I had to guess. All right, let's talk about advancements in uh, prenatal testing. Start with the maternal fetal blood test, then go to ACOG recommendations. Let's talk about some of that stuff. So prior to maternal fetal blood tests, which, of course, are non-invasive and just a simple blood draw that you can do at, you know, first trimester or beginning of second trimester, you always had to have an amniocentesis or chorionic villi sampling done, which includes, you know, risk of miscarriage. And those were only being offered to older mothers, uh, some, you know, historically. Then this maternal fetal blood test came out and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology recommended that every pregnancy be screened for Down syndrome. And our community did not respond very well to be candid we were. We thought this was an attack. It was a eugenics movement, and this would be the end of all people with Down syndrome. So we got a little histrionic, myself included. I'm like, I'm going to be out of a job in five years if, if this happens. But the um, opposite is probably what correct. happened. Yeah. Just, just like HIPAA, when that came out, we overshot it, and then we re- recalibrated or what have you. But we have not seen our birth rates decline at all with the advancement probably of prenatal up, testing. Aren't they? Uh, in our area, we have not seen any decline. Okay. We haven't seen any increase. Okay. Uh, there, there are many more turbinations happening coast on the coastal regions for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Uh, but in the Bible Belt, you know, with a lot of religious families, there are many of our families that actually decline the testing because they know it wouldn't change. You know, the, the, the outcome. Yeah. Right. This is not a decision. This is a wanted pregnancy. We don't want to know. But there are many good reasons to know ahead of time, even if you would never terminate a pregnancy. Right. Knowing ahead of time can help you select a hospital that has a level three NICU in case your baby has um, Hirschsprung's disease or duodenal atresia or heart issue that needs addressing right away after birth. Uh, and for some families who um, are surprised diagnosis in the delivery room, it's very traumatic for them yeah. and they didn't get to celebrate their baby's birth. So finding out prenatally, you know, you have time to process all those emotions, gather yourself, collect your resources, build your tribe, and then it can be a true celebration when the baby's born. So it can go, it can be a double edged sword to know ahead of time because you have a long wait. And some of my parents say, I wish I had not known. I, w- I would have enjoyed my pregnancy. But m- most of my parents with prenatal diagnosis are like, I'm so glad it went down that way so that I had time to adjust and we could make our birth plan and, you know, our work plan and, you know, all of that. You know, it seems to me that, that you absolutely would want to know because I, I get the idea of it wouldn't make any difference to us one way or another, but because we're going to keep this baby, but... To learn what the resources are, for instance, you talked about making sure that the NICU unit was able to, well, when Piper was born, there were issues, and she had to have some medical procedures done, and she was at a hospital in St. Louis where they had all of that available, and she's fine. Sure. Okay, and, you know, she's... She's perfectly fine today from a physical standpoint, has no issues. But them knowing ahead of time helped them make the decisions that allowed them. They got her into a, a... 
program, a government program. They got into, a, you know, they did a whole host of things that made a big difference for them. So that knowledge is power, yes? Yeah, in many instances it is. For some people, it's really overwhelming. Uh, one of the issues we have with the way the tests are marketed, though, the maternal fetal blood tests are, are people will call me and say, we've got a confirmed diagnosis of Down syndrome. So my my curiosity peaks and I say, oh, did you have a, a, a amniocentesis or a chorionic villi sampling? They said, no, we didn't want to risk a miscarriage, which is totally fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in that sense, they don't have a true diagnosis yet. Ah, They've had a screening tool. Right. So these blood draws are oftentimes marketed as diagnostic when they're, they're only not. screening in nature. How and then they're much more accurate um, screening results on an uh, older mother than a, a younger mother. And they use the words risk instead of chance. And I know that seems like, you know, you say potato, I say potato. But it's it's very different uh, the way we, the medical community frames their language. Now we have great geneticists and maternal fetal specialists here, and we've done a lot of training, and they invite us in. So our families are for the most part having a decent experience with prenatal diagnosis. But there are some stories out there that you know there's a rush to judgment that this is a bad outcome and will yeah. help you schedule your termination, which is like. Whoa, you know, if I was diagnosed with yeah. breast cancer, they're not saying here's a card and what your double mastectomy is next week. They're saying you can do chemo, you can do radiation, you can do nothing, we can watch and wait, we could do a biopsy, you know. And yeah. and rarely if ever are the medical professionals talking about adoption being an option, which is um, you know, has happened many times here in Kansas City. Families have decided they weren't they didn't want to parent a child with Down syndrome, so we helped them create an adoption plan. And that's a loving option. And uh, but medical professionals aren't really talking about that. And there is a network yeah. uh, of 200 families that are prepared to welcome a baby with Down syndrome and uh, registered their profiles and a great national Down syndrome adoption network available to help these families. Yeah. So that's really important to know, because if you decide we don't want this baby, we don't want to deal with this. The fact that there are people out there that will adopt that child, mm-hmm. though, that's a, that's a piece of news right there. Okay, that there are people that are willing to do that. So that's a far better option than termination in terms of the opportunity for that child. If there's going to be a loving family that's going to adopt them, that's going to make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. So is that you? You you talk about you know we've only got about two minutes here, but the dignity in in healthcare, then the gap analysis. You talk about lack of training for clinicians. Talk a little bit about that. Why is that? So there's a multi-million dollar grant to set up the dignity in healthcare for people with disabilities, and I serve on their advisory board and then on the end of life and aging subcommittee, but there's also a prenatal committee. And what we have, is we conducted a gap analysis for the last year and a half, and we've determined that you know there's huge disparities in the quality of healthcare that people receive based on a diagnosis. And it's very concerning to us that our families and the people they love with Down syndrome aren't always offered the same quality care. There's presumptions made. There's DNRs placed on do not resuscitate orders placed Ooh, without talking Lord. to anybody. Uh, I had a, a local family call me and say they were really confused. Their 40-year-old daughter with Down syndrome was at a hospital and had a GI obstruction, and the surgeon said, do you really want to put her through the surgery? And you well, know, What was he <laughs> suggesting? I, I don't know. Uh, Send her home with an obstruction that could end up you know, fatal. I'm yeah. not sure. But I said, okay, well, I'll call the hospital ombudsman. And, we'll, and sure enough, the next day, the surgeon said, let's do the surgery because somebody was minding the store. You know, so th- there would never have been that That's conversation. That's shocking for me to hear you yeah, say that. Okay. That conversation never would have happened with anybody else who was 40. No. So there, there's, a, there's a medical bias, and, and we need to work on that for sure. Well, and, and that means, by the way, folks... 
if you're looking for that resource and you have that issue with a Down syndrome child, that's why you get in touch with folks like KCDSI at the website kcdsi.org, or you can call them at 913-384-4848. I promise when I come back, we'll give you some national addresses that you can go to should you need help. Stay tuned. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate, broadcasting here on the HIA radio network, coast to coast across the USA. We're going to be right back with more. Welcome back. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate Show, broadcasting coast to coast across the USA here on the HIA Radio Network. My producer, the always perfect Mr. Oscar Monterosa. I'm your host, Carrie Hall. If you want information, this is the national website. If you're listening to me in Atlanta or you're listening to me in Montana or you're listening to me in Elmira, New York, the website is NDSS, NDSS.org, National Down Syndrome Society.org. They can connect you with local providers just like Amy in your area. You know, this is a wealth of information which is why I wanted to do this show. There are all kinds of people out there and in this organization that can help you with everything that's associated with the Down syndrome birth, the Down syndrome child. Even if you don't want to have the child, as you heard Amy say, help you put the child up for adoption. So there are multiple options and all kinds of resources. Take advantage of it um, if you've got an issue or maybe, you know, you've got a, someone in your family is getting ready to have a Down syndrome child. So again, the website, ndss.org, here locally in Kansas City, kcdsi.org. Phone number is 913-384-4848. All right, let's talk a little bit about the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines. So we have a network of about 60 Down syndrome specialty clinics across the country. Okay. Um, we have uh, three here in our area, which we is lovely. We have three in Kansas Yes, City. we have a children's clinic at Children's Mercy Hospital, an adult clinic at KU Med Center, and Advent Health just opened a SPAN special needs clinic. Okay. Um, so this is fantastic. The directors of those clinics all comprise something called the Down syndrome medical interest group, and they get together annually and they do case studies and talk about their patient practices and here's trends that we're seeing. And we, we really got stumped working with this patient and everybody exchanges ideas and then they come out with reports. Um, so they gave some feedback over the years uh, and the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with um, guidelines for all the different uh, things that our children should be screened for more frequently. So they cover birth through age 21. And we know that our, our children are more likely to have vision and hearing issues, some GI issues, respiratory problems. 50% of our population usually has heart issues uh, of yep. that. They, most of them need issues. corrective surgery. Yeah. And these guidelines are really helpful tool to our families. So they can take those into their pediatric office or their primary care physician and say, hey, you know, it's time we need a blood draw every year because leukemia is more common in our population or we need the thyroid tested this this number of times or how, whatever the frequency is. Or every child right now with Down syndrome is suggested to have a sleep study by age four because sleep apnea is so rampant in our population. We didn't know that till about a decade ago. And uh, you know, not getting a good night's sleep multiple times in the course of the evening, not having oxygen going to your brain when you right. already have a cognitive deficit. This is what's causing the hyperimpulsivity at schools, the inability to attend a task. Uh, a lot of the behaviors that we see that we think are stubbornness are really... I'm just never getting good sleep. And they're tired. <laughs> yeah, and they're and tired. irritable and yes. grouchy. And then low muscle tone weighs me down. You know, So these guidelines are fantastic for our families. And, and I tell everybody, you don't need a doctor who's an expert on Down syndrome. You need somebody who will look at the guidelines and say, let's let's go by the book. Okay, let's take out the checklist and let's do these screenings. But you have to know the guidelines exist. Correct. Yeah, they're on our website and they're handed out in all of our new parent welcome baskets. And we refer to them frequently. And our, our team is all trained to share the information. But a, pedi- a pediatric office probably doesn't just have them on hand. 
hand unless they're already seeing several patients with Down syndrome. All right. So again, and I assume that same guideline is on the NDSS.org website. Yeah. If you just type in Down syndrome healthcare guidelines, your local association should have them. National will have them. We'll have them on our website. Uh, you can even just type in American Academy of Pediatrics Down syndrome healthcare guidelines and they'll pop up. Interesting. So um, you, you talked, you know, one of the things in the notes, we don't have a lot of time left, but I want you to go into this. Equity in healthcare is lacking. Uh, you mentioned that story a minute ago about the surgeon. There was a blockage and the surgeon was like, do you really want to go through with this? Yeah. It, would you have really asked that question of anybody else that was that age? The answer to that is very obvious. No. No. Nope. So talk a little bit about that. Why, you know, that, that presumption that's there, the poor quality of life, not necessarily so. A study came out recently, and I, I apologize, I don't have the right reference to cite for you, but it was, you know, like 82% of medical professionals felt that people with intellectual disabilities had a lower quality of life than the average guy walking down the street. Based on what? Um, well, you have to understand when they they have a myopic view, they only see our patients when their diagnosis is bad for them, okay. when there's some, you okay. know, a heart issue, respiratory yeah, issue, behavior yeah. issue. Uh, right before I came here, I opened the mail and there's a graduation announcement for a young lady. I delivered her welcome basket 18 years ago and I babysat her at my house back in the day and she's graduating high school and she's had a great life, but I'm, I'm feeling ancient, you know, because of but that. But how cool is that? But they don't get they don't get that kind of information. Right. And I, I do training with all the second year residents at Children's Mercy Hospital. They spend a half day in our office or on Zoom now at this point, and they get two parent perspectives. They hear from a self advocate living with Down syndrome who's an adult who's a paid employee for us. And then I talk about all these best practices and the there's a lot of diagnostic overshadowing where we put everything in the Down syndrome bucket and that's just normal for them. Or we say, you know, why would we put them through that because they have this this you know diagnosis? So it becomes very frustrating. Uh, there is a lack of equity in healthcare. Even, you know, when COVID came, we were very panicked because uh, they weren't allowing anybody in hospitals to be bedside. And in many cases, our folks are not going to be able, you know, children specifically are not going to be able to advocate for themselves. And our parents were even desperate to have both parents bedside because there's a lot of medical information flying around. And if this becomes, you know, a a very serious situation, you don't want to be the one parent there and the one watching on Zoom at home. Uh, So we have to do a lot of education in this area. And most professionals, if they're being candid, will tell you we don't get any training on Down syndrome. It doesn't come in medical or, school. Yeah, it's very brief. The training they get on Down syndrome is related to chromosome count. You know, and <laughs> that doesn't have yeah, a lot to the do. Gen- the genetics function of, of diagnosis, not the social, emotional functions of it and family impact and, and what, what is helpful to families. It's the, the, it- I guess it's. I guess. I guess it shouldn't be surprising, but it is surprising to me. Uh, and then I, when I hear a story like the surgeon say, "Do you really want to put the put the person through this?" I'm like, "Did they really say that?" So there is a lot of education, not just of people that have children that have Down syndrome, but also in the medical community that is a continuing thing that needs to happen, so that they start to understand these folks can have a decent quality of life, um, and and they can live. Up to age, well, you've got one that's 67 yeah. years old right now. One quick plug. There are yeah, adult, adult health care guidelines that finally came out last year the, okay. um, through the Global Down Syndrome Foundation. So if anybody is, has a loved one who's an adult and you're like, oh, I wish we had guidelines. You do have guidelines now. Just go to Global Down Syndrome <laughs> Foundation Adult Health Care Guidelines and you can print those out. And you may have heard, Amy said in the very beginning of the show, that they work with uh, the Down Syndrome folks all the way through the time that they are adults. So it doesn't stop because they're not children anymore. They work all the way through. Thank you very much for doing this today. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it was kind of like drinking out of a fire hose, wasn't it, folks? But you learned a lot. There was a lot to learn today. You know, I do these kind of shows because we're trying to educate you and bring information to you that you're not going to get other places. That's why we do this, this long-form programming that we do. And the idea is to educate you and give you information because it can make a big difference. So thank you again, Amy, for being here. The website for these folks here in Kansas City, kcdsi.org. The phone number, 913-384-4848. And the website is for the National Association, ndss.org, ndss.org. And now I leave you with this thought from Dr. Martin Luther King. Americans must learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we will surely perish together as fools. That was never truer than it is now, folks. Thank you for listening to America's Healthcare Advocate, broadcasting here on the HIA Radio Network, coast to coast across the USA. Goodbye, America. (laughs) 